We've been teaching through, we spent about two and a half years teaching through the Old Testament, and now we're working through the New Testament and, and having a good time doing it. Today we're going to talk about parables. And it's really useful because we've had, um, uh, for the last few months, staying with us a couple from, from Israel, uh, a gentleman, Emmanuel Tov, who's a Hebrew professor uh, and an extraordinary scholar, uh, who's been studying here in the, the States at, at the library for the last couple of months. So Emmanuel Tove and his wife Lika were, were with us for dinner the other night. And we had some other friends who had just flown in from Israel, from Jerusalem. Uh, uh, that very day, Miriam had flown in, uh, Ronig. And so we had four folks from Jerusalem with us for dinner. And... I'm interested in what's going on in the world. I want to know what's happening. I've also got uh, two of our young daughters around the table. And as parents tend to do, I want to force them to learn um, where they've got no choice. So I'm asking these nice questions about current events. And I said to the, the, the Ronigs and, and to the Toves, I said, okay, you've been in Israel and, and we get the headlines. You know, we read the headlines that the Hamas rocket hits Tel Aviv, three Israelis killed as the war escalates. So Palestinian rockets target Jerusalem for the second time. What's going on? What is it like? And, and to hear Hal explain what it's like to have the sirens go off. He'd be talking to his daughter on the phone. The sirens would go off for his daughter where she was in Israel. She's running to the bomb shelters you know, they've got, I think, 45 seconds, supposedly, when the sirens go off to take cover. And to hear the description of what daily life is like with this was stunning to me. And I said, well, you guys are really smart guys. And you're really plugged in. What is the answer? What needs to be done? And Hal said, I'm going to tell you a story. There's a story about a turtle on the banks of the Jordan River. And there's a scorpion that comes up to the turtle. And the scorpion says, hey, I need to get on the other side of the river. Can you give me a ride on your back? And the turtle says, I can't give you a ride. We'll get out in the middle of the water. You'll sting me. I'll die and we'll drown. The scorpion says, no, 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 no. Think about this logically. There's no way I'm going to do that. I mean, I, I, I would drown. I can't swim. If you're in the middle of the water... And I sting you. That's suicidal. The turtle thinks about it. He says, well, when you put it that way, I guess you have a point. Yeah, hop on. I'll give you a ride. So the scorpion gets on the back of the turtle. Turtle starts swimming. Turtle gets halfway across the Jordan River. Out comes the stinger. Scorpion stings him. The poison starts taking effect. And right before he dies, the turtle says, why did you do this? Why did you do this? This is suicidal. And the scorpion says, you're right, it is. But this is the Middle East. And down they went. And he doesn't have an answer. Outside of something divine, there doesn't seem to be much of an answer. But I really liked what he told me because he told a story, a parable, that made sense not only to me, but kept the attention of our two younger daughters who were sitting at the table as well. They listened to it. They tuned into it. And parables have that ability. They've got this ability to grab a hold of you and you'll listen to them and you'll pay better attention. So I want to talk about the parables this morning. There are about 40 parables, depending upon how you count them, in the New Testament. Don't worry, we're not going through all 40. We're talking generically about parables and we will use several parables along the way to illustrate our points. But a parable, if you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll read that a parable is an allegory, a proverb, a discourse, a speech. But if you read the fine print in the OED, you'll see that it comes from a Greek word, parabole. Parabole in the Greek means something called alongside. It's something that's next to something else. And so this is the Greek word for a comparison or an analogy, or a proverb, or a simile, or a metaphor, or something like that. It's, 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 it's something told with something else having the meaning, or something called alongside it. 
There's a Hebrew word that we find in the Old Testament, mashal. Mashal references the same type of thing. In the Old Testament, it means a proverb or a wise saying. It is the word used in the title of Proverbs, though it's uh, in the plural form. So you've got mashalayim, but you've got the, the, the mashal, the, the Hebrew, it's sometimes used for a prophecy in the Old Testament. But it's basically the idea of some wise saying or some proverb. Okay? Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, we're hundreds of years after anything had been written in the Old Testament. By the time we get to the New Testament and we read the Jewish community where Jesus lived and and was born and raised and and, uh, spent his ministry, at that point in time, a Hebrew mashal, a Hebrew parable had taken a new form than it is in the Old Testament. There was a very specific form, quite unlike you find anywhere else. There was a specific form of a parable or a mashal that was being used by the rabbis in the century before Jesus and into three centuries after Jesus. And so when Jesus spoke in parables, he was speaking in a parable that was a very specific literary type. It was, a, it, was a, it was a special literary device that was used for about two to three hundred years. And, and it's, it's not found anywhere else. The Greeks had Aesop's fables and they had similes and metaphors, but they did not have this type of a parable. So what is it that made these New Testament parables unique? And by New Testament parables, I'm including the rabbinic parables, the parables that rabbis told leading up to Jesus and for several centuries afterwards. Well, what made them unique, you you can find scholars who dissect them. But when you put it all together, there were about seven items, seven formula items that make up a parable. Number one, it would be some type of a statement that it is a parable. Here is a parable, or this is like unto, or he spoke in a parable. There is some indication generally that it is a parable. Number two, there is a narrative. There is a story that is told. Number three, this narrative won't tell you when it happened. It won't tell you where it happened. It doesn't dig into those types of specific details. Because the story is not as much the point. It's not, it's, it's a made up story. So it's not location specific. It's not time specific. But the story is some description of real life. It's not some, um, uh, it's not the hobbit. Okay, it's, it's not, um, though some of us have big feet that, that might make you think, if you've seen, anyway... This is not that way. This is real life stories. Okay? These stories are not prophetic visions. There aren't visions involved in them. And generally, not always, but generally there's a very clear message that comes from the story. And you can get it. You might have to chew on it for a while. But you you realize, okay, and sometimes it just says, and here's the message. Last and most interesting, and we've got some Hebrew scholars here this this Sunday morning, so I throw this in there for you. Even in the Jewish literature that was written in Aramaic, these formalized parables are always told in Hebrew. They're always in Hebrew rather than Aramaic, which is a fascinating issue to try and figure out if Jesus was actually using Hebrew when he did these. Not the point of the class, just a freebie for Monson and a few others to chew on. So, having said that, let's look at this. We're going to look at two things with the parables. Number one, we're going to ask, what do these parables mean? And what do these parables mean? And then number two, why did Jesus speak in parables? What was going on here? He wasn't a classically trained rabbi. Why is it that he chose this device to communicate the message that he had to communicate? So we start with, what do the parables mean? Well, this is not a tough question, uh, or not an original question, I should say. 
There is a parable that Matthew talks about in the 13th book of Matthew. It's called the parable of the weeds. And here's what happened. And we've, we've stolen a painting from Tissot to illustrate this. But here's what happened. There's a man who has his fields sown with wheat. Everybody's happy. The labor is done. They go to sleep. And while they're sleeping, an evil, wicked enemy comes with weed seed. That's not marijuana. That's like, it wasn't a commercial crop, even in Colorado. Uh, it's a, um, it's like weeds, okay? And this man takes the, the enemy, takes the weeds, the evil man does, and he spreads the weeds out amongst the wheat. Now the plants start coming up. And the servants look and they see amongst the wheat all of these weeds. And they go to the master and they say, hey, you got ripped off. You planted really bad seed. I don't know where you got your seed. Did you do this? Did you give us bad seed? And the, the landowner says, no, 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 no. No, an enemy's done this. They said, well, I guess we need to go out there and whack out the weeds. And the master says, no, don't whack out the weeds right now. Because you're going to lose a lot of wheat if you do. Just wait till the wheat is ready for the harvest. And then we'll have to whack out the weeds as we harvest the wheat. They say, okay. Now, this is not a parable that's easily understood. And in Matthew, as Matthew records it, Jesus keeps doing some stuff. It looks like there's a little bit of time that passes. And then Jesus is by himself with his closest disciples. And they go up to him and say, what, what was that about? I don't, I don't get it. What was it, what, what's the meaning of that parable? Explain to us, they said, the parable of the weeds of the field. And Jesus gives the explanation. So it's not a novel question for us to say, how do you understand a parable? The apostles themselves were struggling to understand some of the parables that Jesus gave, not all of them. Now, if we read parable interpretation historically, it's fascinating. Because the early church read parables in a very allegorical manner. They took the parables and they interpreted all of these little different elements as some allegorical representation of something. And it's really fascinating to see how they did it. Let's look, for example, at the parable of the Good Samaritan which is a good example because it's one that a lot of people know. If you don't know it, it's a great parable. Here's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I like it because it starts out with a really cool guy. Look at this man. Behold. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to the man, he says, well, what's written in the law? Have you read your Torah? And he says, uh, uh, well, it, the Torah says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And he quotes Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, the fifth verse which every good Jew would say as part of their Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Sometimes lawyers don't know when to shut up. It's one of the lessons you get from this parable. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself... Ask one question too many. He said to Jesus, okay, who's my neighbor? How far does this go? I mean, we've got some really neat people that live on both sides of us. But you go down a few houses and it gets sketchy. My sister, mom, my other sister... Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho... And he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw the half-dead man, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, the Samaritan had compassion. The Samaritan went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. Next day, he took out two denarii. And he gave them to the innkeeper and said, you take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Jesus then asked the lawyer this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, the early church loved this parable. And you can look at Origen, who was a church father, writing at the end of the 100s, so the late 2nd century. And he was very typical of an early church interpretation of this. Here is, if you were in church in 200 AD, in Alexandria, Egypt, this is what you would be taught this parable means. Or, for that matter, if you were in church 400 A.D. and you had Augustine teaching. Augustine wrote on the parable very similarly. He would say, okay, there's a man. Hebrew word for man, Adam. Adam. There's a man, Adam, who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a man that's leaving, been thrown out of the garden. Jerusalem represents the Garden of Eden. It represents paradise. And he's going down to Jericho, which is the fallen world, detestable. He, whoa, okay, there we go. Thank you, Steve. So this is, he's, this is Adam, okay? So Jesus says, Adam, that's Adam. Adam leaves paradise. And he goes to Jericho. He goes to a fallen world. And he falls among robbers. This is sin. And sin strips you. And it devalues you. And it destroys who you are. And who you're meant to be. And it brings you down. It beats you. And leaves you half dead. Now, a priest was going down the road. And the early church would say that the priest represents the Torah, the Old Testament law. And so the Old Testament law comes upon someone who's beaten down by their sin of their life in the world. And the Old Testament law can do nothing to help that person. It passes by. And a Levite comes by. The Levite, the early church would say, represents the prophets. And the prophets could come upon someone in their sin and all they could do is pronounce judgment. They couldn't do anything about that half-beaten man and they pass him by. But a Samaritan. And the New Testament church, not New Testament church, excuse me, the early church taught that the Samaritan is Jesus. Jesus comes upon that man has compassion, goes to him and binds up his wounds with oil and wine, the sacraments. Sets him on his own animal. And they differ over what the animal was. This could be the Holy Spirit. This could be any number of different things. It could be the body of Christ. It just depends on who's drawing the allegory. Um, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The inn, the early church would say, is the church. So you find this poor person in their sin, introduce them to Jesus, they get their sin bound up, they get delivered to the church. The church is given the denarii with the promise to take care of the man until the Samaritan returns because Jesus will come back. And this is what the church taught. It was an allegorical approach. And they did this for a number, well, for all of the parables. Now, that's fine and well and good until the Reformation movement starts. 
And Luther had some trouble with that approach to the parables, but John Calvin really went after it. And John Calvin said, I acknowledge that I have no liking for any of these interpretations. We ought to have a deeper reverence for Scripture than to reckon ourselves at liberty to disguise its natural meaning. He said this allegory stuff is just a bunch of people who figure out what they want it to say and read into it rather than reading it for what it says and taking out of it. Calvin was not a fan of this. So Calvin started a movement away from this allegorical interpretation. The movement continued and really took its biggest leap when a German theologian, New Testament scholar, named Adolf Juliker, wrote his big masterpiece that he's famous for in theology. It is the first major work on the parables. And in it, he said, there is absolutely no allegory that should ever be read into a parable. Parables have one meaning and one meaning only. And there's a problem here. Because, for example, that parable I told you about the weeds, Jesus answered the disciples' questions. And when he answered it, he gave an allegorical explanation of what it was. So Juliker said, well, that wasn't what Jesus said. Jesus knew better. That was added by the church probably back in the 200s when Origen and those guys were running crazy with these parables. Well, time has shown Juliker's wrong. That wasn't added 200 years later. It was actually in there as early as Matthew is. We don't have any copies of Matthew that indicate in any way that that was a later ad. But Juliker did refocus people on the idea that by and large, most parables from that time had a core message, which is what uh, was being taught as the parable was being taught. Since that time, scholars have continued to come up with all sorts of ways. If you go look at parable books, and I'll bet you there's a neighborhood theological library that probably has around 78 of them on its shelf. You will find all sorts of things. You'll find scholars who say, this is the existential scholars, who say that the meaning of a parable is all up to you. It's just, how does this make you feel? And then it's however you feel is what it means. So it can mean something entirely different from Alice, for Alice than it does for John. It's just, it's just a, it's a Rorschach test. What do you see here? By the way, I can tell you all about your personality disorders if you want to shout out what you see in that Rorschach block. I researched this, and Dr. Bob taught me how to read them. No, um, that's, that's what it is. Now, other people have come along, and they've said, no, 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 this is eschatological, which is a fancy theological term. It comes from the Greek eschatos for the end days, and it's the idea that these parables were written or were told to talk about the end times, and they should be understood in that light. I want to suggest, among the myriad of different interpretations, the one that makes the best sense to me. And here it is. Context. When in doubt, read it in context. That's a good general rule for just about anything in life, especially the Bible. Put it into context. When you put it into context, you want the context of the passage itself. That means uh, what, what the passage says as a whole, but it also means understanding the culture and the time and the, the, the imagery and the dynamics and the, the, uh, all of the things that are a part of climbing into first century Palestine to understand that context of the parable. Second... You need to understand how the parable's placed by the gospel writer. Because at least Matthew and Mark never wrote their gospels with the idea, and Luke either, with the idea of a chronology. It's not simply, here's the order of things on a timeline. They're orchestrated like a flower arrangement. Let's put this here, put that there, let's put this over there, put this over here, so that the entire arrangement gives off the, the, the uh, uh, substance and the message that the writer wants. 
So you've got to read within the context of the parable as it was told by Jesus, but you've also got to read within the context of how the parable fits into the writing of the gospel. And if you do that, these gospels make, or these parables actually make a whole lot of sense. Let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we could spend a week on this parable alone. I'll just pull out two aspects to help you understand the context issue. First, the priest and the Levite do not help. The priest and the Levite are not a neighbor to the Jew who has fallen and been beaten and left half dead. Who helps is the Samaritan. Now the Samaritan... Whoops, get that off of there. There we go. The Samaritan. If we know who Samaritans were, it helps us tremendously appreciate the audacity of Jesus in this parable. The Samaritans were not on good terms with Jews. The Samaritans believed that they were the rightful descendants of what the Jews would call the lost ten tribes. The Jews considered, and Jews being taking that name from the tribe of Judah, which was the predominant tribe left after the fall of Israel, left in the southern kingdom. So the Jews don't like the Samaritans, view them as unclean half-breeds from people who were resettled in and tried to claim the heritage of the offspring of, of Abraham. As a result, Samaritans were deemed unclean, and the Jews would not touch them. They would not talk to them. They would not share a meal with them. They certainly would never come to the aid of a Samaritan. And I suspect the Samaritans were much the same with the Jews. So Jesus has picked someone that's odious, that's just repulsive and repugnant to his audience and makes that person the hero of the story. Now, it also helps us understand some of the context if we not just understand who the characters are, but it helps us understand the context if we understand where the terrain is. This is a picture that John Monson sent me. That's John Monson, who some of you know in this class because he's here frequently. Um, that's him as a boy when he had hair, sitting there on the little hillside over near the area. You know, when you leave Jerusalem and you go down into to, uh, Jericho, you make a descent over that uh, 16 miles or so. You make a descent of almost three-quarters of a mile. It's very steep. It goes from being a wonderful mountainous area to being basically Jericho. You take away the oasis there, and it's just desolate desert. But the road down there through these gullies, these wadis, the road down there, here's a picture of some of the road on Samaria, or, or on the road to Jericho. It's very winding to try and get down the mountains. It's very winding with turns and sharp cliffs and abutments. And it's a very natural place for robbers. By the third century, when Jerome and Eusebius are writing, it carries the name of the way of blood, the road of blood. And Jerome says that it got its name there because so many robbers waylay people on the road. Now, if you understand that, you've now put this parable into a little bit more context of its culture and its day. Jesus is describing an all-too-frequent and real occurrence. This is not something bizarre. This is something that everybody fears. And the one who comes to the rescue is the Samaritan. You see, you start putting this stuff together, it puts it into a fuller context. There's a lot more that can be done. I leave you to do it on your own. Let's talk about the parable of the sower for a moment. There are four soil types in the parable of the sower. Let's look at this parable. This is found in Matthew chapter 13 also. Jesus goes out of a house. He sits beside the sea. Great crowds gather around him. He gets into a boat and sits down while the crowd stands on the beach. 
And Jesus told them many things in parables. See, it identifies these. Saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some feed seeds fell along the path, and the birds came out and devoured them. Other seeds fell. All right, so here's what we've got. Some seeds, let's, let's follow this. We'll put a number one there. Some seeds, here, number one. Some seeds fell along the path. Birds come and eat them. Other seeds, this is number two, fell on rocky ground. They didn't have much soil. Oh, they sprang up real fast, but with no depth of soil, when the sun came out, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Three, other seeds fell, this is our third type, among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Four, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let him who has ears hear. Now, I've chosen for the painting on this. Uh, I really, if we can go back to the PowerPoint, thank you. I really love Van Gogh's painting of it. Because you can see the bird just sitting there about midway down on the picture on the left. Near the stony path that's in the middle. That's going to receive some of the seed. And, and, and he put that in the middle. There was a barren part, I think, of Van Gogh's soul and life where, where that's the part that spoke to him about this parable. But um, uh, we've got Van Gogh's painting there. And it's a splendid parable because Jesus says there are four soil types. Now, we've talked in here before about how numbers back then were not as scientifically used as they are today. Numbers back then had great symbolism. And the number four was a symbol for the completeness of the world. So there are four corners of the earth. There are four points to the compass, north, south, east, and west. There are the four winds. There are the four elements of the earth. Um, Four was deemed the, the fullness of numbers for the earth. So Jesus, in choosing four soil types, is choosing to say, this is the way you, this is the grouping of people who are going to hear this message. And respond. There are four groups. Boom, 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 boom. Now the interesting thing is, this is very rabbinical. If we look at the rabbinical parables that were being told at the same time, or, or we can, I, I've pulled two of them out from the Mishnah, a vote. And uh, let's read it in English. <laughs> this is what the other rabbis would say. There are four types of disciples. See, just like Jesus said. He who's quick to hear and quick to lose. Someone who forgets. And his reward is offset by his loss. He who is slow to hear and slow to lose. Slow to hear. Takes me a while to get to it. Once I get it, I hang on to it for a pretty good while. His loss is offset by his gain. The fact that he's slow to hear is offset by the fact that at least he held on to it for a while. Then there's someone who's quick to hear and slow to lose. This is someone who hears it, says, that's it, I'm there, and hangs on forever. That person is a sage. There's the wise man. And then there's someone who's slow to hear and quick to lose. Takes forever before you get on the program and then you leave in a puff of smoke. And this is the evil portion. And this is very typical. There's another one below it. There are four types among those who sit before the wise people, the sages. The sponge, the funnel, the filter, and the sieve. You can say, which are you? Oh, I'm a sponge. I'm a funnel. I'm a filter. I'm a sieve. This was the way they taught So Jesus is very, very typically rabbinic. And he says, there are four soil types here. But there is, when you read the parables of the rabbis and compare them to Jesus, while they've got some comparisons that are very similar, they've also got some very vivid distinctions. And this is a parable that's really good for showing the distinctions. For the rabbis, someone is is a good 
student and a sage and a, and a, and a good disciple if they spend their time studying Torah. Jesus draws a little different path. If we look at this parable, sorry, if we look at this parable in the way Luke tells it, Luke talks about the good soil and he says the people in the good soil where the the seed goes in and it takes great root and it bears forth a hundredfold, those people have a cardia kale. They have a heart that is good. In Hebrew, that would be a lev tov, a good heart. Lev is your heart, tov is good. So this is someone with a good heart. But that Hebrew phrase has a little bit of a very idiomatic meaning. It was, a, it was an expression. It referred to someone who was charitable, someone who was generous. So for Jesus, the good disciple is not so much the one who's going to spend all of his time in the ivory tower reading the Torah. Jesus doesn't draw that rabbinic uh, um, power from his parable. Instead, Jesus says the good disciple is the one who's going to be generous in doing right. The one who's going to be charitable. The one who's going to be doing for others. Jesus was an emphasis on do. The rabbis is an emphasis on study. And it's an interesting thing. And that's not to say that Christianity or Jesus should be anti-scholastic. But it is to say that the concerns in the heart of Jesus is to minister and serve to others. And all the scholarship in the world, if it doesn't get you to that point, has missed the point. And you go further, the way Luke tells the story, Luke gives a reference back to a Genesis passage. Because Luke says the person who does this will have a 100-fold increase. And that's a reference back to Genesis 26, 12. The 100-fold increase from a sower is the increase that came to Isaac. Isaac sowed in that land and he reaped in the same year a, whoops, a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. The man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. The point of the story with Isaac that the sages drew and that was popular at the time of Jesus, it was been well understood by the people, is that Isaac had the promises of God's blessings from Abraham because he was descended from Abraham and God said I will bless you because of Abraham Isaac knew he had the blessings of God but Isaac still went out there and he sowed and he did knowing that the blessings of God would come through and his own actions if that makes sense so when when Jesus references this back as Luke shows us What Jesus is saying within this parable is the heart of a disciple is a heart that's not just faithful and trusting in God, but it's a heart that's changed in the way that person treats the world. That person invests their energies in other people. That person invests their energies in trying to see others better off. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Um, so that gives you a semblance of how Jesus and his, rabbi, uh, and his parables were in some ways in sync with what was being said, but in some ways very, very different. I love this because this to me gives me a chance to look at Fiddler on the Roof. If Tevya was here today and Tevya was in our audience, first I'd have him do this. If I were a rich man, all day long I did it, did it, did If I were a wealthy man, hey! I wouldn't oh, have to work hard. Now, think about that song for a minute, because that song sets out the dilemma. If you know the song, think about it with me. If you don't, go get it and listen to it. Watch the whole movie. Make your kids watch the movie. If I were a rich man, I'd just bid, 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 bum. All day long, I'd build a house 
with one tall staircase just going up and one even longer coming down. I'd see my wife strutting like a peacock with a proper double chin. I would have all these turkeys and geese. Everybody would come up to me and fawn over me and ask me posing questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes. And then he talks about what would be the most special thing he could do. Listen. If I were rich, I'd have the time that I like to sit in the synagogue and pray. And maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day. And that would be the sweetest thing of all. That would be the sweetest thing of all. To study and discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day. And so if Tevya were in our class, I would say Tevya. Tevya, Tevya, Tevya. With all due respect, you make the same mistake that many of us make in our faith. We think that to be good Christians means that we need to spend 10 hours a day studying the Bible. When sometimes the most Christ-like thing we can do is reach out to someone in need and show them love and compassion. Sometimes the most Christ-like thing we can do... Oh, I know my wife sometimes has like lots of things going on. And I'd love to help her do those things. But I'm pious. And I need to pray. Heaven forbid. I read a poem one time. In fact, it was a required reading in one of my classes in, in school. And I committed it to memory, and I haven't said it in a while, so I don't know if I've still got it in the gray cells, but let me see. One day, one very ordinary day, my Lord will return. Oh, how I wish he had found me in study, knocking on a door, or telling someone about Jesus. Instead of changing diapers cooking meals, and taking care of my family. God have mercy on me. And I thought, oh! And our professor gave it to us and said, do you realize that that poor soul who tortures themselves has no clue what Christianity is all about? God did not come to take us into a relationship with him so that we could become harsh, pious, recluses. Or people just bent on such, evangel- uh, such zeal that we lose track of the common ordinary holiness in loving people and treating people right on our station in life. Whatever we have to do. And this is the context of what these parables say. So if we ask what they mean, if you get into the parables themselves, yes, some of them have a very clear meaning. And sometimes it may even be a singular meaning. Some of them say it's allegorical. Be very careful. Don't start reading your own theology into, their, into the parables. Let the parables speak for what they say. Some of them are very end time oriented. You know, these scholars don't come up with this stuff just off the top of their head. There's a basis for it. If you go back and you look in Matthew, you'll see that Matthew gives parables that are very much about the world. And when we say end time, don't start thinking about the Jenkins books and all of that kind of stuff. That's not the New Testament concept. New Testament concept is... You had the patriarchal age, you had the age of the prophets, you have all of these different ages. The end times biblically are the times from Jesus on. Okay, so it's not referring to a last day, last week. Last, the last days, we're in them, but we've been in them for 2,000 years. Okay? So here's what Jesus says. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than every plant, becomes a tree. Birds of the air come and they make nests in it. 
Or the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till all the bread was raising, rising. See, Jesus did tell parables that said, you know, the, 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 the Christian faith is that mustard seed. It was just in the backwater country village area of Palestine, buried in the, the outreaches of the Roman Empire, among just a select few. But that small mustard seed would grow into a plant where birds from all over the nations, from all over the worlds, nest in its trees. So it's very prophetic. And that's there. Now, I'll go even further and I'll say to some degree, these have a Rorschach quality. And let me tell you why. When Jesus told these parables, don't you know that the people heard the parables and then they went home and talked about them? What would you think about that one? I don't know. What do you think about it? Which soil type are you? Well, I don't know about me, but I can tell you which one he is. We don't call him Rocky for nothing. You know, I mean, they would discuss them. Jesus taught in a way that drew people in and kept them involved. And I'll tell you, uh, if, if I can just give you a quick summary, why did Jesus speak in parables? There's a passage that bothers some people. I've written about it in the lesson. You can read about it there. But what I want to do is I want to tell you Jesus was a master communicator. And there is a power in stories. Bob would tell you that stories get behind the natural defenses of people. And that's a very biblical thing to say. You know, remember when David's having the adulterous affair with Bathsheba. If Nathan had gone up to David and said, Hey, David, uh, you're having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And you killed her husband so he wouldn't find out about it because uh, uh, she got pregnant and he wasn't there and it was going to be obvious to everybody. And David, uh, all David would have done was continue his cover-up probably by killing Nathan the prophet. So instead, Nathan the prophet goes up to David and he says, Man, we got problems in the kingdom. David said, What's the problem? He said, There's this fella who only had one sheep. It was his pride and joy. It was his treasured possession. He just nurtured the sheep. The sheep lived in the house, which actually was common then. And uh, uh, then there's this other fellow who has like thousands of sheep. And he had to kill one for a guest. So instead of killing one of his thousands, he went and took the sheep from the guy who only had one and killed it for his own personal benefit. David, at that point is enraged. He says, who is that guy? He ought to be strung up. You bring him to me. I'll see that he pays with his life. And that's when Nathan said, well, actually, it's, it's you. And the sheep was Bathsheba. And David's like, oh. Oh. And you can read Psalm 51 for the rest of that. Oh. Um, Jesus was a master communicator. He spoke in these parables that have a, a power and an ability. And so as we look at them, here are my points for home. I've got three of them. First, a sower went out to sow. A sower goes out to sow, and there are four soil types. I can tell you which one I want to be. I want to be the disciple who hears what Jesus has to say and responds in faith in a way that, that grows roots deep into the soil. And thrives for the benefit of others in the kingdom. I want to walk closer to God in purity and faith. That's one of my take-homes. Second take-home. There was a man who had two sons. It's a parable Jesus told in Luke 15. I'll modernize it because we don't have time to get into the context. There's this business guy. Had a lot of money. Set up two trust accounts for his two sons. Thought they'll come into the business. This will help seed them. They're going to do good work. One of the sons gets old enough for his inheritance. Goes in and says, Dad, I don't want to do the family business. I want out of this. I said, well, what are you going to do? Well, give me my money. I've got some other ideas. Well, where are you? I'm, I'm, Dad, look, man, I know it. And I'm out of here. Can I just, is it mine? I thought you said this was mine, Dad. Well, okay. Takes the money, goes off, squanders it. Squanders it. Um, wastes it and is flat broke. Tries to get a job, but the economy is really, really, really bad. Unemployment really high. He can't even get one at minimum wage. All he can do is find this farmer guy. 
Actually, let's make it even more contemporary. All he can do is find this uh, 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 garbage man who doesn't like to do his own garbage work. He doesn't mind doing all of it, but he doesn't like to climb into the garbage pit and rummage around for something valuable. So he hires this guy and says, hey, rummage around for the plastic uh, things we can recycle. Just dig through the garbage. So the guy's sitting there digging through the garbage, realizing that this man's going to make more off the recycling than, than I, that, that son has to eat. And says, man, at least the guy's working in dad's yard or on his warehouse. Get paid more than that. Maybe I could go back. I don't have to be a son. I'll just go back and work at the warehouse. So he says, that's what I'm going to do. So, you know, he doesn't have shoes anymore. He's in rags. He smells like garbage. He hasn't taken a shower. He, heavens, he doesn't have money for a razor. He's deodorant. Doesn't even know what it is. He's, he's walking down the road. People are staying far away. He smells. He's ugly. He looks like he's a thief. And he's walking down the road and he's practicing the speech of how he's going to t- say, you know, Dad, I, I know I'm not, I'm not in the family anymore. I know I got a, took my inheritance. I know I've been written out of the will. I know I'm not trustworthy. I know you can't give me, but, but can I just work for you? I'm sorry. Can I just work for you? And he's practicing the speech and as he comes down the road, his dad recognizes him even in that manner. And his dad runs to him. And his dad says to him, he says, he says, oh, my son, my son. And he starts hugging him. And as the boy's telling the speech, the dad, dad, I'm not worried, I'm sorry. Dad's not even paying attention. He's turning around yelling to his workers. Hey, go get some real clothes for my son. Go get some, we've got some, we kept his room, it's there. Go get his clothes, get some shoes. Get, come on, get, get the stuff. This is my son telling him, hey, tell the kitchen to start making a big party. It's party time. And, and the older brother's sitting there watching all this thinking, well, this isn't fair. And goes up to dad. Dad, he's like the loser. I did it right. And the dad says to that older brother, he says, yeah, he was the loser. And he was dead. And he's come home and he's alive. And that's a cause for rejoicing. That's a point for home. The point for home to me is the welcome home of a joyful father. Because that's all of us. Before God. That's all of us before God. Last point for home. Jesus says you go and do likewise. He told that to the lawyer. I take it personally. All of us walk a road to Jericho. It was a very real road. And there will be people on the road of our life. That need help. And we are to stop and help them. In the name of Jesus. Because he told us to. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your kind, loving patience. Thank you for running to us. Thank you for clothing us, for treating us with love and mercy when justice would leave us barren. We pray that we'll be a deep, rich soil that will take seriously your charge and will follow you in faithfulness and love. We pray this in your name. Amen.